I felt overwhelmed at the time. It felt like I needed to do something, and I did. Charles Cullen. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Audie Griffith. And I'm John John. Hello. If you guys could do us a huge favor, hit that subscribe button, give us a review, and give us five stars. We'd really, really appreciate it. And unlike the last couple of episodes, today's topic is not who did the quote. Today's topic is Carol Cole. And I don't know if you know him or not. No idea. Okay. Well, he is a serial killer. And he started killing at the age of eight. He's not the youngest serial killer, but for a time he did hold that title. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he does not have a very great life. And he killed a lot of people, but it really does make for a very interesting episode. All right. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. I, I know. It, it's a little weird. Um, but a lot of quotes are from him and everything. So it, it makes... It, this episode is very, very interesting. So I'm interested to see how everyone likes it. Uh... Eight-year-old serial killer. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into it. He doesn't... Yeah. We'll, we'll just get into it. Are you ready to kind of dig into it? I'm hesitant, but yes. All right. Let's dig into it. He was born in Suic City, Iowa. Well, his father went to fight in World War II, at the age of five, Cole was taken along by his mother and forced to watch as she entertained men. She would often beat and torture him to scare him into not telling his father, and as he grew older, Cole was forced to dress in skirts and petticoats for the amusement of his mother's friends, despising or dispensing tea and coffee at the sadistic parties where the woman gathered to make sport of a man's little girl. So right off the bat, very, very troubling childhood. Yeah. Like she deliberately made him watch stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And like bring him along and everything when she went to go. Uh, uh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and then like forced to cross dress and mm-hmm. yeah, just for the amusement of his mother's friends. Not not a very good thing. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. No. So even when his father returned home, Cole was frequently whipped and beaten by his mother for the most minor infractions, and he grew up with a deep hatred of women. According to school records, Vesta kept whipping her boy at home until the age of seven. Vesta is his mom. When by law, he should have entered first grade 
already by the age of six. At the age of seven, he enrolled in elementary school, two years behind his peers. Cole grew up fearing for his masculinity, intensely sensitive to jokes about his sissy given name. Sources vary, but sometime between the ages of eight and ten, he murdered a classmate. He says, The kids made quite a thing of taunting me, Cole later recalled. I felt the animosity withdrawing more and more into myself. One afternoon, hiding beneath the porch at a home, Cole briefly blacked out and awoke to find he had strangled the family's puppy. Strangely relieved by the act of killing, he began to fantasize about killing his mother, father, or in fact any female who crossed his path. Despite those lethal daydreams, Cole's first murder victim was male. The boy was, an, this is in quotes, an ass from school named Dwayne and one of those who taunted Cole relentlessly about his name. One summer afternoon in 1946, Cole joined his brother and a group of other boys to go swimming at Richmond's Yacht Harbor. Duane was a part of the group, and they had barely reached their destination when he resumed the tired old tyranny. How does it feel to have a girl's name, Carol? They were alone, and with Cole in the water and Duane crouched on a nearby log, prepared to spring. He held his nose and jumped, Cole tracking his progress from the trail of bubbles, moving to intercept Dwayne. As Dwayne tried to surface, Cole clamped his legs around the boy's neck, bracing his hands against the nearest log for leverage. I held him up under until I knew he was dead, Cole later wrote, and when I let him go, he sank. Authorities dismissed this drowning as an accident, though Cole spent several months in fear of imminent arrest. I was afraid of the police with reason and I thought, but there was no remorse for Dwayne. I hated him and I was glad I stood up for myself. He was very like, this is not good behavior already. No, no, is like, Full on, just like he saw an opportunity to kill this bully, which, yes, stand up to bullies. That is a good thing. But don't kill them. No. That is. Why would they bring him along just for a swim if it was just going to be those two? As Other kids were with them, but I think they separated is mm. from what I got from that. Oh, yeah, oof, okay, all right, yeah, no, nothing, nothing about this situation seems like a a good thing. Yeah, and again, sources vary between the ages of 8 and 10 this incident happened, Um, and he also killed the family puppy, which I'm like, God, no, don't hurt the doggos. Definitely not, but, I mean, that is pretty typical for Escalation. people. Escalation. Like yeah. yeah. He's, he's really just missing the pyromania and uh, bedwetting to get the trifecta. Well, he might have had the bedwetting and just gotten severely punished for it. That's true. That is true. Anyways, it was the first time, but it would not be the last. The thrill derived from murder is a temporary fix. Like any other powerful narcotic, homicidal violence satisfies the senses for a time, but 
the effect soon fades, and when it does, a predator goes hunting. In quotes, if I thought my life was going to improve, Cole said, of killing Dwayne, I was sadly mistaken. Neither at home or at school, I was getting meaner and meaner and fighting all the time, in a way to hurt or maim, and my thoughts were not the ideas of an innocent child, believe me. Cole masked his morbid fantasies to a degree in elementary school and in junior high, but they began to take a toll. An IQ test administered in February 1953 ranked Cole at the genius level of 152, but his grades scraped along that semester at a D-plus average. By high school, he was burglarizing liquor stores, drinking heavily, and finally dropped out entirely in the middle of his junior year. Cole worked briefly at Richmond Factory, then joined the Navy in 1957. Drinking and theft of government property sent him to the brig, but it was a San Diego arrest on suspicion of burglary and auto theft that finally got Cole discharged on October 4, 1958. For reasons even he could not explain, Cole returned to his parents' home in Richmond and endured a new round of abuse from his mother rubbing his nose in the latest abject failure. So he escaped, you know, joined the Navy, but still his habits sent him in a spiral downward, and then he returned to his abusive home. Mm, that's probably not going to help him out. No. No. Though with the burglary and stuff, Phil. Like, he was just, like, robbing liquor stores and stuff like that? Was it more just, like, petty theft and not, like, just getting a cash register, you think? Or was it just, like, stealing booze and then sneaking out? I think it was booze, money, and then he did steal a car. Because mm. it was several times that he did this. Okay. Yeesh. Yep. Cole remained with the family, working odd jobs and logging various minor arrests until June 1st, 1960. That night, prowling a local lover's lane, he approached two couples in a parked car and attacked them with a hammer. Convicted of assault with a deadly weapon on June 28th, he was sentenced to 30 days on the county work farm. So, he tried to kill them, and it was four people, and he seriously hurt them. They didn't die, and he only got 30 days. At this point, I'm like, dude, you could have prevented so much more. Yeah. I don't know if that's, like, the same thing they would do these days with, like, an assault with a deadly weapon charge. I think that's... Pretty light. Yeah, like, very, very light. Like, okay, don't do that again, but you'll be out in a month. That... That's, that like, barely a slap on the wrist. Very. Okay. Mm hmm Hmm. So, in, <laughs> in January 1961, Cole flagged down a Richmond police car and told the patrolman of his urge to rape and strangle women. Several phone calls later, the officers suggested voluntary self-committal to a mental hospital. Cole entered the Napa State Hospital on February 2nd, 1961, for 90 days observation and treatment. He wanted help, but dared not mention Dwayne's murder and could not bring himself to, to discuss Festa's cruelty. Reports from Napa Records record Cole's fantasy, A Happy Childhood, noting 
that he talked about both parents rather glowingly uh, in terms. Vesta confirmed the lie when she was interviewed by Dr. R.C. Hitchton, another psychiatrist. Dr. L.M. Jones described the final meeting where staff members discussed Cole's case. It was felt by some he was possible... He was a possible sexual psychopath, potentially dangerous to community, and staff made a diagnosis of antisocial psychotic personality disturbance on March 21st and recommended that he be discharged, not suitable, not mentally ill, and recommended that he apply for outside psychiatric treatment or voluntary admission to Astro State Hospital because of his sadistic, abnormal sexual tendencies. So they did diagnose him with something and thought he was a danger, but not enough to be admitted involuntarily. Hmm. So they interviewed his mom and kind of confirmed that he was lying about his past? Yeah, his mom straight up told, like, well, not straight up, but, like, told him, like, yeah, she was very mean to him and not very loving. Like, he he hmm. was kind of very similar to Ted Bundy. He was very similar to Ted Bundy and, like, faking that his childhood was very good and talking about his mom in glowing terms. Okay. That's... That probably should have been a bigger red flag for them. Yeah. Yeah. Napa staffers released Cole on March 25th, 1961. While serving a six-month sentence for auto theft that July, Cole repeated his plea for psychiatric help. Judge Raymond Cullen signed the committal order on October 6th, and Cole entered Astastro, sorry, Astastro State Hospital 10 days later. Doctors there found his test results very puzzling and contradictory. Dr. Erwin Hart diagnosed Cole as a very passive-dependent person with a facade of independence, and confusion concerning sexual identification. Identification. So he kind of like didn't get any of the vibes when he, uh, any of the same vibes of, as when he was self-admitted. Oh, so like, like what they were told was very different from what they saw. Yeah. So like his old, like he acted pretty normal-ish this round, I mm. guess. And I'm using the term normal kind of yeah, just as a filler. Like putting up a very big front because I'm my theory on this so far is that what he tried for last time didn't work, so he's trying something very different to hopefully get different results. Yeah, maybe. But like with him acting normal, like he wasn't going to get help, I guess. Almost like fully accepting that he's just going to be like this since what following all the rule type things wasn't going to change anything so yeah nah kind of giving up on that mm -hmm. Cole was transferred to Stockton State Hospital for further testing and treatment on September 12, 1962 there Dr. I.I. West noted that he seems to be afraid of female figures and cannot have intercourse with females at first, but must kill her before he could do so. West diagnosed Cole's condition of schizophrenic reaction, chronic and the chronic undifferential type, 
and released him on April 19, 1963, with an indefinite leave of absence to self. So that one he kind of was more open, I guess. So he might have just not liked the hospital before. Could have been. And I'm thinking, like, with this, for some reason, like, they knew that he would, if he was going to have intercourse, he would have to kill the person, and then thought we should let him out into the wild. Yeah, because, like, with them diagnosing them at this, it's like, you know that's what he's going to do. Yeah. Plus, I think, like, that was... Like, mid-60s, early 70s at this point? Uh, early 60s. Okay. Um, they like to, like, put anything psychologically, any diagnosis was schizophrenic. Yeah. So, this might have been just, like, a weird misdiagnosis of something or just, like, something that was confused with the terminology of different stuff. So, they thought it was probably more harmless than it actually was. Maybe. Upon his release, Cole noted that his family was salacious to some extent, but they were really wishing I was elsewhere. His brother Richard had moved to Dallas with his wife, and Texas was suggested for a change of scene. Laverne bought the bus ticket in May 1963, and Eddie headed south. I believe Laverne was his brother. Cole later recalled that his brother spent the next few weeks showing me Dallas through bar and tavern windows. Soon he was able to find the saloons and the women they attracted by himself. On July 5th, 1963, despondent over a failed attempt to strangle a woman he had met in one dive, Cole attempted suicide with pills and spent four days in a psychiatric ward. Soon after his release, Cole met Neville Billy Whitworth, an alcoholic stripper, whom he described as neurotic and unstable, just like me. It was the ultimate codependent relationship, compete with raging violence on both sides. Cole and Billy married on November 1963, soon after her part-time employer, one Jack Ruby, murdered the alleged assassin of President John Kennedy. The marriage was chaotic from day one, lust and anger fueled by alcohol, interrupted by arrests for drunkenness and domestic violence. So, hold on. So... These these two very, very troubled people... Yeah. ...got together, got married. She lost her job because her boss assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald? Um, I'm not quite sure who he assassinated. It just says the alleged assassin of President John Kennedy... And I'm assuming that means Lee Harvey Oswald. I, I'm assuming her uh the employer was Jack Ruby. Oh. Weird. Yeah. So oh. Yeah. It was a very interesting tidbit. And I'm like, this case is very, very interesting all around. Yeah. So very like like really engulfed in like not directly, but very historic American events during this time as well. Just like it is directly affecting them. Yeah. In a sense. That's weird. Yeah. That's cool though, but it's weird. Yeah. And so just kind of like rewinding a little bit, he did try to strangle someone before 
the marriage and everything. So, like, he's escalating. Well, I, I shouldn't say escalating because he already killed, but he's, like, re-escalating. Um, yeah, I'm guessing that the constant fights and alcohol probably didn't help with that. No. So, the relationship came to a head in August 1965. Cole convinced was convinced that Billy was servicing men at the motel where they lived. Furious Cole set the place on fire and was indicated for arson on August 19th, convicted and sentenced to two years imprisonment on March 1966. So let me just point out, I like how arson gets more time than, like, the almost murder charge. Yeah, like, that was, that's a bit weird, and it seemed a little bit more appropriate for the charge. Yeah. But still... The previous one, where it's just like, so you directly tried to kill these people. You get a month. You indirectly cause a fire. wanton devastation for many people. Now you get two years. I know. But not really specific. There's one person you probably weren't enjoying there, but a bunch of other people suffered for it. So, yeah, two years. But if you were attacking them directly, it's just a month. Yeah. Assault with a deadly weapon. The almost murder charge. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but yeah, no, I I just, I, I think the sentencing system is so flawed. I think so too. Yeah. But eh, different times. Hopefully things get better soon. It was the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Lots of hippies. Lots of hippies. I, weren't hippies more 70s? No, Woodstock was in the 60s, I think, right? I don't know. I don't know either. But anyways, it was the 60s. So he served nine months and was released on January 5th, 1967. Tired of Billy and their wasted life, he started drifting aimlessly, his travels marked by a series of arrests. An Oklahoma City court fined him $20 for vagrancy by pimping in April 1967. A month later... He invaded the bedroom of an 11-year-old girl in Lake Ozark, Missouri, and he tried to strangle her as she slept. Her screams summoned help, and Cole was captured moments later by police, facing 10 years in prison on a charge of felonious assault with an intent to ravish. So, this was kind of just summarizing that. He snuck into an 11-year-old girl's room, tried to kill her first, and then it, it was like an intent to rape after she was dead. Mm. Well, at least one doctor kind of had something right in diagnosis. Yeah, no kidding. But Still I feel though. terrible for the 11-year-old girl, but glad she was fine and uh, was able to get help. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough living in Missouri, and you have to deal with that kind of weirdness. Yeah, no kidding. Oof. Okay. That's heavy. Yes. So this is a quote from Cole. The public was so aroused that in another time frame, I would doubtlessly have been taken out and lynched. Instead, he pled guilty to a reduced charge of assault with the intent to kill and received a five-year prison term. He was paroled on May 1st, 1970, entirely unrepentant. If anything, he later admitted, I was worse. So... Again. Still. But still, it wasn't a month this time. No, it wasn't a month. It was five years, which is slightly longer than the arson. But, but not enough. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he did this to a child. Yeah. That's... Hmm. It's... Yeah. I, this should just be, like, an essay on the wrongness of certain sentencings. As, uh... I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. And, like, he said, too, like, if anything, he was worse at the end of his term. Like, you know he's just gonna go on to do more bad things. Hmm. That might be more the prison system than it is anything else, but still. That's true. Anywho, Cole drifted back to San Diego, then to Reno, Nevada. Twice he tried to strangle women he met in bars, but his victims escaped both times. On September 19th, 1970, he surrendered to the Reno police and confessed his urge to murder women. Detained on a charge of disorderly conduct... Cole was admitted four days later to a state hospital at Sparks, Nevada. There, Dr. Felix Peebles diagnosed Cole with an antisocial personality with alcoholism with compulsion to strangle and rape pretty females. That is the sentence on the document, which is uh, a little... <laughs> that doesn't sound as professional as it probably is. I know, right? I this was this was like the most unprofessional one, and I just thought to point it out. Mm. I'm on a lot yeah. of tangents today, but like uh, this one no. is very, very interesting to me. That's just weird. Okay. Yeah. I guess is that a medical term now? I don't know. Pretty females is a medical term. You I heard it here first. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Or in 1970 when it was listed. Um, nope, you heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> so by October 13th, that diagnosis had changed to Brand Cole, a highly manipulative young man who is utilizing his difficulties with the law in the past and his threats of violence upon others to find shelter when he is out of funds or ways to get what he wants. So... It was just changed to him being very manipulative. And well, by yeah. any means necessary. Mm. Seems like it was already kind of the case, but maybe he just perfected that skill. Yep. Dr. People's Order Cole released with the following notations on his file. Condition on discharge. The same as admission prognosis. Poor under disposition, Pebbles noted. He was discharged and placed on an express bus for Los Angeles, where he was able to change buses and go on to his home in San Diego, California. Cole wasn't cured. He was somebody else's problem now. And at that point, Cole had given up on seeking help. Understandably, because none of it helped, despite him seeking it several times. Yeah, but... but Again, something interesting about this case, he did go and, like, actually seek help and want help for, because mm -hmm. he knew he was doing wrong. I think he was just, like, at a bad point in that regard, because not a whole lot was known about psychology stuff yet. Yeah, I agree. So, if it was in a different time, he might have had a better shot, but he wasn't, so he didn't. Yep. Naming San Diego as his home was a strategic move on Cole's part. As a border town, he later wrote, it's wild and practically anything goes. 
Also, being in California, it's easy to get on welfare, and my record with the state hospitals qualified me for disability. Cole played the game to a point, training as a nurse's aide, but he was appalled by local hospital conditions. Have you ever seen a patient eaten up with bed sores because someone didn't care enough to do their job, he wrote. And the verbal abuse was something else. I often thought of waylaying one of those nurses in the parking lot, killing her for the old folks, but unfortunately our classes were in the daytime. So he just saw some nurses not treating patients very well and wanted to get more revenge because that's how his brain thinks. That seems a lot different than what I would expect, honestly. I I wonder if like a lot of it was just fabricated in his own mind, or if that was really the case. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It could have been fabricated, but at the time, though, I could see that happening. Yeah. Still, though, getting like bed sores galore because people weren't checking on you, that's got to be a rough time. Yeah, no, for sure. So instead of wailing on her, he was transferred because of his aggression to others. After three flings at psychiatry, Cole noted, My urges were stronger than ever, but I wasn't concerned about it anymore. I just said to hell with it and waited to see what would happen. And stuff did happen. On May 7th, 1971, he met Essie Buck in San Diego Tavern and strangled her in his car leaving her body in the trunk overnight. The next morning, Cole remembered, I felt nothing, no elation, guilt, or any of the feelings thought to appease someone like me. Just cold nothing. He discarded the body on May 9th, his 33rd birthday. Two weeks later, Cole would claim he met another hard-drinking woman known only as Wilma and strangled her after a night on the town. He had buried her corpse in the foothills outside San Yersardo. I think that's how you say it. So, essentially, just like he gave up on getting help and then he strangled two different women? Yep. That he met at bars. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, he's spiraling. So, he buried her corpse in the foothills outside San Sardo, where it remains undiscovered today. His third victim, a week after Wilma, was killed and buried in a similar fashion. If Cole ever knew her name, he had forgotten it years later when he penned an account of the murder from prison. And in June 1971, while serving a time for theft and drunk driving, Cole was questioned by San Diego homicide detective Robert Rigg. Essie Buck was mentioned, startling Cole. He admitted sleeping with her on the night she died, but claimed he woke the next morning to find her dead of unknown causes beside him. Cole had dumped her body in a panic, he claimed. It was far-fetched, Cole wrote in 1985, but Ring bought it. Cole was released on schedule in March 1972. So, I don't think they did an autopsy to find that she was strangled. I think they just took it as she was a drunk and overdosed or something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of problems with this investigator now. I know, right? A short time later, hunting, he drove to San Yusardo on the Mexican border. Cole picked up two Hispanic women in a bar and took them for a ride. 
a few miles outside of town to drink more beer, but Cole had other plans. When one woman slipped away to relieve herself, he bludgeoned her companion with a hammer, then strangled the other upon her return. Afterwards, he buried both women in the desert, two more victims who were never found and never named. In September of 1972, shortly after his release from jail on yet another drunk driving charge, Cole met an alcoholic barmaid named Diana Paschel. They soon moved in together, although neither was monogamous. Diana's infidelity ranked, however, reviving memories of Cole's mother, but it did not stop him from proposing marriage on July 1973. The union was nearly as tumultuous as the first, and Cole celebrated their first anniversary by fleeing to Nevada with a girlfriend. Diana forgave him when Cole returned home a month later, however, and in August 1974, they agreed that no good would come of their relationship in San Diego. They picked Las Vegas on a whim and left to start a brand new life. For Cole, things were about to go from bad to worse. Nothing improved for Cole and Diana in Las Vegas. They drank as much as ever and both still had wandering eyes. Despite his ex-con status, Cole soon found a job transporting coins from slot machines at McCarran Airport to downtown casinos. The lure of easy cash proved irresistible, however, and Cole soon fled with the day's receipts, leaving Diana behind as he set off on a rambling cross-country joint. While working oil rigs at Casper, Wyoming in August 1975, Cole met Marlene T.B. Hammer. He noted the wedding ring on her finger, and Hammer seemingly disregarded for what it meant. After hours of drinking, they went for a drive to find some privacy. Hammer had suggested sex, but Eddie wanted something else. He strangled her in the car, then left her on the grassy hillside, covered with an old sleeping bag. Her corpse was found by police on August 9th, and Cole left town the next day, heading west. So, back in San Diego, Cole stayed briefly with Diana, again, the old girlfriend, or old wife, I guess, then wound up in a local detox center after one of his drunken binges. Worst trouble followed when he stole $1,500 government check from one of his fellow patients and tried to cash it for himself. Charged with mail theft in 1976, he jumped bail but was soon recaptured and slapped with a new charge of unlawful flight. Conviction on both counts earned him a one-year sentence in February 1977. He was paroled in April, however, and he fled back to Las Vegas, a federal fugitive. A month later, he strangled a prostitute, Kathleen Blum, and dumped her body in a stranger's backyard where police recovered it on May 14, 1977. So, to recap just what happened, he got caught for stealing and uh, stealing checks after he was in a detox center for drunk driving. After he was released and paroled, he went to Las Vegas fleeing, and he wasn't supposed to, and then strangled somebody again. Mm. Vegas doesn't seem to be suiting him very well. No. Mm. He, yeah... His body count, not not his sex body count, but his body count is really high right now. Yeah. Not to mention the amount of weird, various amount of jobs he had while traveling everywhere, too, so. Yeah. He's 
I, I don't really condone this, but there's a lot on that checklist that's been checked. I know, right? You get a lot. Yeah. Detectives had no leads in the case, however, and Cole stayed in town long enough to be jailed for car theft in North Las Vegas on July 19th, 1997. Cole made bail, then skipped his September court date and made his way to Oklahoma City. Nevada authorities waited until December to swear out a warrant for Cole's arrest, too late to apprehend him or to stop him from killing again. One night before Thanksgiving, sitting in an Oklahoma City topless bar, Cole met a woman who agreed to spend the night with him. Somewhere in the middle of our making love, he later wrote, the booze kicked in and my mind went blank and I can't say what happened. He woke at sunrise November 24th to find a woman dead in his bathtub, both feet and her right arm severed and missing. Cole found those remains in his refrigerator while a steak sliced from the corpse's buttocks lay in the skillet on the stove. Using kitchen knives and a hacksaw, he finished the dismemberment and placed the remains in a plastic garbage bag and drove them to the city dumped, where they were presumably where they were presumably burned. That day he later wrote was something else. But it was not the end. From Oklahoma City, Cole drove to Texas and found work at Denver City. Unfortunately, the town was dry, but that didn't stop Cole from drinking whatever alcohol he could find. He was soon arrested for public drunkenness, and fingerprinted check revealed that he was wanted in California as a fu- federal fugitive. One week later, Cole was headed back to San Diego wearing chains. On March 8, 1978, Cole received a six-month jail sentence plus three years probation contingent on a full-time employment and participation in an alcohol rehab program. North Las Vegas dismissed his bail jumping charges on Cole's 40th birthday, and Cole was freed June 16, 1978. Soon after his release, Cole re- reunited with his wife, Diana. We got along fine, he later wrote, but I was sleeping on the couch for several days until she finally invited me back into the bedroom. Probation notwithstanding, Cole kept drinking and skated from one part-time job to another. He was jailed for drunkenness on October 25th and slapped with another probation violation, then released on a $2,000 bond. Police arrested him yet again on November 8th, but neglected to inform his probation officer. A federal hearing in March 1979 continued his probation while Cole continued drinking and trolling for victims. On August 27th, 1979, Cole met Bonnie Sue O'Neill in a local bar and took her back to the appliance shop where he was temporarily employed. Years later, Cole recalled, It was a tryst as a night to end all screwing, but it ended when O'Neill mentioned a need to phone her husband. Cole strangled her on the spot, dumped her body out back, throwing her clothes in a nearby garbage bin. Speaking in 1985, Cole and both... so. Speaking in 1985, both Cole and his former employers agreed that the police had never come to the shop or questioned any of the staff about the case. Cole's marriage was on its last legs at that time. On September 17, 1979, he strangled Diana at his home, wrapped her body in blankets, and stowed it in the closet. A neighbor called the police eight days later to report Cole scrabbling around beneath the house. Patrolmen found him in the crawl space, working on a grave-sized excavation, and they drove him to the local detox center. 
By the time he was released the next morning, Cole's mother-in-law had found Diana's corpse and the house was crawling with police, but he eluded them and caught a bus to Las Vegas. In fact, he had nothing to fear from the San Diego authorities. Autopsy results pegged Diana's blood alcohol level at four times the legal limit, and her death was attributed to alcohol poisoning. The only person looking for Cole so far was his federal pr probation officer. A bench warrant for his arrest was issued September 27, 1979. In Las Vegas, Cole found work as a truck driver for religious charity, picking up donations of clothing and other secondhand items. Newly single, he began dating a female co-worker, and while the relationship led to his third marriage, it never prevented Cole from picking up women in bars. One of those was Marie Cushman, who accompanied Cole to a Bosch Hotel November 3, 1979. He killed her there and left her body in the room to be discovered by the maid the next morning. Curiously, an article in the Las Vegas Review-Journal described two suspects in Cushman's murder. One was an unidentified 50-year-old man, 5 feet 2 with gray hair, the other described as a cashback desk clerk, was an Indian in his 30s about 6 feet tall, with short wavy black hair, driving a Chevrolet with a California license plate. Neither bore any resemblance to Cole, however, and the false leads left police stooped. So, just, just to kind of recap uh, on something... When he went back to his wife, yep. marriage has fallen apart. He ended up strangling her, wrapping her in blankets, and then placing her in a closet. Got yep. arrested and all that stuff. And his mom found, uh, her mom found her in the closet, wrapped up. And they just attributed that to alcohol poisoning. Yep. I'm not thinking. Maybe anything else was weird, like maybe why she was wrapped up. Yup. And in the closet. <laughs> yup. Oh, that is infuriating. What's infuriating is he was arrested so many times in between, before, and after all these murders. Like, that he could have been stopped so many times. Yeah. Still, though, it's just so weird. It's just how. Do you not think that there was something go like he should have at least reported something or brought something up? He was found digging a huge grave. Yeah. With his dead wife in a closet, wrapped up in blankets. Why why was none of that associated with each other? That is ridiculous. I have Who no are idea. these police officers? Why were they so stupid? I don't know. But they were very bad at their jobs. It's just like, yeah, she had a lot of alcohol in her blood. Maybe cool. look at the wrapped up person in the closet and then the husband digging the grave. It's always the husband. Yeah, but like they didn't even suspect anything with that. It's just like, oh, she must have died of alcohol poison. How did she get in the closet? Yeah. How was she wrapped up? It's just, if you were died of alcohol poison you should be like sprawled out on the floor or the bed or something but completely cocooned up in a closet that doesn't none of that screams like oh this was natural causes oh that's infuriating yup yup 
But then he went to Las Vegas again, which would never, it was good. It was never good. Oh. Bad times. Bad times. Yeah. So he was stopped for driving without a valid license December 16th, 1979. And he might have escaped with just a warning, but a computer name check turned up the federal bench warrant. Held as a persistent violator of probation, he wound up in the Springfield, Missouri at the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. In August 1980, Dr. A. E. Miller filled the following report. There is no evidence of psychosis or neurosis in Mr. Cole. Diagnostically, he may be described as a character disorder. It is unlikely, however, that the major personality changes will occur. He does not appear motivated by any sort of treatment at this time. Despite that judgment, Cole was released on October 4, 1980, and bussed off to Dallas, where he would murder three more women by November 30th. Cole's murder confessions in Dallas rang bells in Las Vegas, where Detective Joe McGullen heard the news and booked a flight to Texas on December 3, 1980. His interview with Cole convinced McGullen that he had solved the homicides of Caitlin Blum, Marie Cushman, but knowing the killer was not the same thing as bringing the victims justice. Texas had Cole on ice for a 25-year minimum, making it doubtful that he would ever face trial in Nevada, unless Cole himself collaborated in the effort. Cole, meanwhile, had other plans. In November 1982, after nearly two years inside, he began plotting an unscheduled exit from the Texas State Prison at Huntsville. By now, he later wrote, escape was my only thought, and I began to put an elaborate plan in effect. He stole food coloring to dye his white prison uniform a less conspicuous hue and Tabasco sauce for his shoes to throw off tracking the dogs off of his scent. Angling for a transfer to the prison's garden crew, he planned to overpower a guard, take his weapon, and run as if his life depended on it, which it might considering the temper of his guards. Then on the eve of his planned escape, Cole was injured in prison, woodshop, an accident, and transferred to a new facility. All of his plans were good for nothing. In January 1984, Cole received a letter from California advising him of his mother's death. A month later, on February 15th, Nevada authorities formally announced their intent to extradite Cole and try him on capital murder charges. Cole waived the extradition on March 30, 1984, and the Las Vegas detectives were sent to fetch, to fetch him on April 9th. In lieu of escape, Cole had decided he would rather die. Nevada prosecutors were anxious to oblige, and a psychiatrist examined Cole on May 1984 and two more in July. All agreed that he was sane and competent for trial. On August 16th, Cole appeared before Judge Myron Levitt and pled guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Attorney Tom Pietro appointed as a standby counsel over Cole's objections protests. Cole's attempt to commit legal suicide, in fact, Pietro, Pietro argued Cole had no right to determine his own punishment and thereby undermined the integrity of the court. For the good society... At large, Pietro said he should be granted leave to search for mitigating circumstances. Cole had a simpler, more direct perspective. 
I believe in capital punishment, he declared. I don't see why Pietro is going to come up with his stuff because there's nothing good about me. Cole's penalty hearing convened on October 12, 1984, before a panel of three judges. Judge Levitt was joined for the occasion by colleagues Richard Ligares and Norman Robinson. District Attorney Dan Satin called witnesses, detectives from Las Vegas, Dallas, Missouri, and Wyoming to confirm Cole's admissions of serial murder. Two officers from San Diego also testified, but their confused descriptions of several cases and their city added nothing to the presentation. Cole capped the testimony with his own on October 12th, reminding the judges that within five more years, he would be eligible for parole. In Texas, this was false. If not, I would get a very ample chance to escape from the Texas Department of Corrections, he later said. So he's just begging for death at this point. The- yeah, he, like, hmm, like, it seems like almost everybody's trying to stop him from getting the capital punishment, but he's, like, the only one that's all for it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would almost agree. Yeah. The panel took Cole at his word and sentenced him to die for Marie Cushman's murder. Execution was barred in Caitlin Blum's death since Nevada had no death penalty in May 1977. It hardly mattered, though. In Cole's case, one death sentence was enough. Cole was transferred from Las Vegas to Nevada State Prison at Carson City on November 6, 1984. Ironically, that morning brought an announcement from the warden's office. The prison's death chamber that had been out of service for the last five years due to gas leaks was once again opened for business. State legislators had saved themselves a $20,000 repair bill by voting for lethal injection in 1983, and the changeover was finally complete. So, I believe even though it was fixed, he's still going to die by lethal injection. Yeah, but it was like, so they didn't have to do a whole lot of repairs with it, so they switched to lethal injection earlier on, so they wouldn't have to do those repairs. I think That's they... What it sounds like. I think they did the repairs, but it sounds like these issues kept on happening Hmm. so they were looking for a different uh when the lethal injection came through Hmm. like it was a good cheaper option okay so if cole died on schedule he would be nevada's first inmate to get the needle for the next 11 months cole dodgingly resisted all outside attempts to file appeals on his behalf The attempts were fewer than expected in light of his crimes, and as most civil libertarians balked at defending a confessed serial killer and cannibal, Nevada's Supreme Court affirmed Cole's death sentence on October 22, 1985, and Judge Levitt convened a hearing three weeks later, fixing the date of execution as December 6. At this point, Cole had just over three weeks to live. He spent his time quietly completing a handwritten autobiography that ran to some 100,000 words, granting permission for Las Vegas neurosurgeon to study his brain after death in an effort to explain his violent life. On December 4th, he was moved to a 7-by-7-foot last night cell under a 24-hour suicide watch to prevent him from cheating the state. The next day, 
three other death row inmates filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court on Cole's behalf, declaring him, declaring him legally insane, but the court rejected their petition in a special nighttime session. For Cole's last meal, he ate shrimp and chowder at 5.30 p.m., and he was given what he had requested, tossed salad, French dressing, jumbo shrimp, French fries, Boston clam chowder. He also finished off what remained of 25 pounds of cookies and candy that was sent to him a week uh, before by the Newtons. And at 1.43 a.m. December 6th, Cole entered the execution chamber before an audience of select witnesses. By 2.05 a.m., he was strapped to the table and prepared for his execution, and the prison physician pronounced him dead just three minutes later at 2.08 a.m. Unfortunately, in the case of Cole, it took four decades, 16 wasted lives, and countless dollars to complete the job when he was finally dead. And I just want to say it was really hard, and I mentioned this during this story, to find anything about his victims, but these are, are the names that were known. Dwayne Richmond, who was the kid that uh, Cole had murdered, Essie Buck, Caitlin Blum, Diana Peschel, there's four unknown women in San Diego and San Yazardo, Merlene Hammer, Marie Cushman, Bonnie Sue O'Neill, Wanda Faye Roberts, and Sally Thompson. Those were all the people that he had killed. So that is really the story of Cole, Carol Cole. <sighs> kind of shows that maybe more investigations should go into the death of people. Yeah, no kidding. Hmm. I'm still hung up by that being in the closet and decided it was alcohol poisoning. Well, he was arrested after every murder for some charge, and a lot of people just blew off the murders as, like, alcohol poisoning, or they were kind of vagrant, or not really the best crowd, so they just didn't really look into it. Yeah, it, uh, I don't know. That seems like it's just a failure of the political judicial system. I agree. It was kind of cool to see, like, all the historical events and kind of get the perspective of the time. Yeah. Like, being married to someone who worked for the guy that killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. I am convinced that's what they meant. Probably. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so weird. So crazy. It was. So thank you guys for sticking in for that long one. Because yeah. that was kind of long. And don't cross-dress your kids if they don't want it. Because they could be serial killers then. Yeah, or torture your kids. Because that does not end well. Yeah, that probably was more the facts. But I was trying to be funny. Yeah. But anyway. Shall I take us out? Yes, you should. Well, if you haven't already, please hit subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. We really appreciate it. It helps spread our podcast to other people who may be inquiring to similar things as you. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at vileandvice at gmail.com or give a donation through PayPal at the same account. 
We are at Violent Vice Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. No ampersands in it at all. It's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E-P-O-D-C-A-C-A-S-T for Facebook, Instagram, or you could follow us on Twitter at Violent Vice. Again, no ampersands there. And if you feel like supporting us on Patreon, hearing weird stories that my sister tells me to disturb me further, or a couple of blooper-type things, all of our extra stuff comes with just a $1 donation on Patreon, but you can find that at patreon.com slash violinvice. And, you know, if you feel just like emailing us about anything, topics, things you liked, maybe a picture... I don't know if we got any pictures yet, but that'd be kind of neat. But you can send all those to any of those, and we'd see them. We'd love hearing from you. We've had very interesting stuff so far, so please feel free. We love it. Thank you guys so much again for listening. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Even though this is disturbing. It was kind of disturbing, but at least Baba Yaga was pretty light, so. Yeah, I gotta put in those light ones. Those are just for me. If you like them, cool. You and I are alike. That's awesome. Yep. Any creepy, scary stuff, you're like, Audien, you like to see me suffer. Well, the spooky stories are fun. For you. Yeah. Anyways, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Reback. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. To you.